Hello everybody, good evening, good day to all of you and welcome to episode 4 of the Indian Interest Podcast. So let's see who all is there. I can see Tamagna, Sparkly, Dhruv, Daddy Shark, Jatin, Shravani, Purobi, Atharva, Sanathoibi, Tejas, Radioactive Cake 101, Chiching, Brock, Arant, Trupti, Sai Krishna, Rajarshi, Nilab, Trinay, Mahendradan, Sahil and lots of other, other people. Great to see you all. Great to have you all with me today, tonight. And uh, so today, we what shall we talk about? What shall we talk about today? Uh, usually, so the last few podcasts, the last few episodes of Ask Abhijit or Indian Interest, I have begun the podcast by talking about Ukraine, the Ukraine conflict, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So let's talk about something else to begin with today. Where shall we go? Shall I go north? Shall I go south? Shall I go west? Shall I go east? Let's go south. And what is south of India? We have Sri Lanka. So as you all may be knowing, Sri Lanka is going through a crisis right now. A crisis, an economic crisis. They have gone almost bankrupt. They've run out of foreign currency, foreign exchange. And they are desperate for for some kind of bailout from somebody. Somebody, please help me. So that's where Sri Lanka is right now. That's the crisis they are facing. So what has happened? What caused this crisis? And what is the way out? What does Sri Lanka need to do? And what does it mean for India? So why don't we talk about that? Let's talk about that first. So let's go back in time about 10-15 years. So from what I see of the Sri Lankan economic condition, uh, the crisis seems to, the roots, the origins of the crisis seem to go back at least a decade. So if you look at the Sri Lankan economy, it was doing reasonably well until about 12, 10, 12 years ago. And about 15 years before today, uh, let's say from, uh, it was the rule of uh, Mahinda Rajapaksa. So I think he came to power, I believe, roughly in 2005 or so. So he was in power from 2005 to, I think, 2015, thereabouts, a decade or so in power. And during this time, we saw the, the culmination of the Sri Lankan civil war, which was which was between the LTTE separatist forces and the Sri Lankan uh, government. And in 2009, the LTTE was finally defeated and uh, there was a terrible, terrible affair over there. Uh, let's not go into that episode of history right now because it's not completely relevant to what we're discussing. So then, after 2009, Mahinda Rajapaksa was the undisputed leader of Sri Lanka, the great victorious leader. And Mahinda Rajapaksa is not just one guy. He has an entire family around him. They're all in politics. His brother's name, he's got, I don't know how many brothers, three brothers, four brothers. So his brother is currently the president of Sri Lanka. Uh, Gotabaya Rajapaksa and they belong to two separate political parties. So 2005 to 2015 thereabouts Mahinda Rajapaksa was the uh, undisputed ruler of Sri Lanka and if you look at his family they had a strangle they still have a stranglehold on Sri Lankan politics. One could essentially say that they they own why whether it's illegally or legally, whether it's officially or unofficially, they own more than half of Sri Lanka, more or less. That's the kind of stranglehold they have over Sri Lanka, this entire family, the Rajapaksa clan, Rajapaksa family, the Rajapaksa dynasty, including uh, their sons, uh, whatever it is, right? 
so beginning after 2009 or so sri lanka started borrowing money from various uh, places whether it is china whether it is the world bank the imf various the uh, various whether it is uh, countries like japan countries or, or or the international market or whatever they started started borrowing heavily now the sri lankan economy is a small economy they don't produce much that can be exported and it is a heavily import dependent economy that's what sri lanka is like and the rajapaksas start mahinda rajapaksa started borrowing heavily from outside lenders now when you borrow money eventually you have to give it back so uh, these whatever money you borrow is supposed to go into developing the country and if you develop the country uh, properly then that investment will produce returns roi return on investment and that's how you can uh, the sri lankan economy should grow and that's how you should be able to pay back the loans but sri lanka is a deeply corrupt country let's make i mean let's not beat around the bush it is alleged by lots of people lots of commentators and so on that the rajapaksas are a very corrupt dynasty so what seems to have happened is that much of this money that was given as loan loans to sri lanka was eaten up by this ruling coterie the rajapaksas and their minions their the people around them the inner circle of power and therefore the sri lankan economy did not develop the way it should have developed if the money was used for the right purposes and the rajapaksas enriched themselves uh, via these loans and sri lankan economy did not grow and eventually it was time to repay the loans and there's no money <laughs> there's no money for that and there are other, other factors as well for instance the chinese uh, debt trap diplomacy also features in this uh, the chinese are not entirely responsible for what's happened it's just a small percentage of the overall crisis that is due to china so the rajapaksas uh, i think the chinese loans were taken i'm not sure whether it was during the rajapaksa era or the maitripala shirisena era which was from 2015 to 2020 or 2021 roughly you can look up the dates so after 2015 it was maitripala shirisena who was the president of sri lanka for about 5 years and then now we have the other rajapaksa gotabaya rajapaksa who is the president and right now mahinda rajapaksa is the prime minister of sri lanka and they are in different political parties how nice so that they also took loans from the chinese to develop the hambantota port in the south of sri lanka and they knew that they would not be able to repay the money the chinese also knew it and eventually what happened is that the sri lankan signed over the the port or to the chinese on a 99 year lease so now essentially the chinese control that port that is the chinese debt trap diplomacy the checkbook diplomacy the corruption diplomacy in action so some of it is because of china don't blame the chinese blame the sri lankan government they agreed to these loan terms right ridiculous loan terms that they knew that they could not repay the loans and they borrowed so much from various other international lend- lenders and they ate up most of the money so the and the politicians the rajapaksas enriched themselves at the expense of the nation they took money for the nation but they used it for themselves so it must be sitting in their bank accounts somewhere right that's that's what is alleged and that may most likely be correct so that's what happened that is the major portion of what the problem is and also there are other problems for instance the recently the sri lankans uh, they imposed a pesticide ban a complete pesticide ban a complete agrochemical ban 
agrochemical ban in the country and uh, so so that has caused a colossal food crisis the agricultural production has dropped by at least 40% because you know what happens is that if you want see if you don't use these ag- agrochemicals pesticides then you have to do things by hand to keep one hectare of land weed free pest free by hand it takes approximately 120 to 150 hours per year man hours and if you have thousands of hectare, hectares just imagine how much uh, human labor it takes to achieve achieve what uh, pesticides can achieve so so what happened is that the sri lankan uh, this is what happened so this is one of the reports from the deccan herald sri lanka's plunge into organic farming bring, brings disaster food prices vegetable prices shot up and it's been a complete disaster and it's interesting that this was all done on the advice of an indian person uh, whose name is uh, vandana shiva so she is apparently an indian scholar environmental activist food sovereignty advocate eco feminist whatever that means and anti globalization author as you can see she see she wears a gigantic enormous bindi which scares the hijib hibijibis out of me so that's uh, that's the person who advised the sri lankan government to to impose this uh, pesticide and agrochemical ban and that has caused this enormous food crisis which has uh, made the prices food prices vegetable prices everything shoot up and that's what they are going through right now and again there's one more factor in all of this sri lanka's economy is heavily dependent on tourism i think um, 10% or more of the uh, of the gdp depends on tourism and uh, then what we know what happened in late 2019 2020 onwards the the covid disaster the covid pandemic because of which international travel stopped for a couple of years I, so because of that the sri lankans the sri lankan sri lankan economy stopped receiving foreign exchange tourism is a major uh, source of revenue foreign exchange and all that so all of that stopped so that aggravated the crisis and all of this together turned into a perfect storm and now what's happened is that the sri lankans have gone bankrupt the government has gone bankrupt the the country is bankrupt they no longer have money for an exchange to buy essentials like like uh, like fuel for generating electricity so there are these massive blackouts across sri lanka 16 hours 20 hours some places it's completely blacked out they don't have the money to buy food grains food stuffs they don't have the money to buy paper and what not yeah so that is what sri lanka is going through it is an it is a heavily import dependent country they depend on other countries for all kinds of things and the, now that they no, no no longer have the money to repay loans they no longer have foreign exchange they are in this deep deep hole which they themselves dug themselves into so it is the government of sri lanka that is to blame it is the politicians the corrupt politicians of sri lanka who have created the crisis i would not blame china entirely of course everyone knows what the chinese were up to they have this methodology this checkbook diplomacy the corruption diplomacy so the sri lankans could have said no but they agreed so some portion of the crisis is because of china but the majority the overall big thing is entirely caused by sri lanka's politicians
So now the Sri Lankans have are going around with a begging ball in their hand. I, I feel so sorry to say this. Uh, I have absolutely nothing against Sri Lanka. They are our own people. So uh, the Indian government, I believe, has uh, offered them about $2 billion as, as a line of credit. So that will hopefully stabilize the economy just a, just a little bit for a little while. And uh, they will be uh, they will be allowed to repay that that loan whenever they can afford to. So the, the Indian government has not attached any stringent conditions on the Sri Lankan government uh, that you have to repay the loan within so and so time. I think it's kind of kind of a blank check for now, right? Just to stabilize the country. Now the Sri Lankan, what can the Sri Lankan government do? They could go to the IMF, the World Bank, and ask for uh, defer uh, deferring the loan. Low, the loans they have taken or, or ask for more loans or whatever that is problematic now go back to go back in time to the early 1990s when india had had gone through the same problem the indian government well yeah it was behaving in much the same way as the rajapaksas have been behaving and india suddenly was in this foreign exchange crunch it was running out of money it had about 3 or 4 days of foreign exchange reserves left in the that's the it, India was essentially going bankrupt in the early 1990s, and who was the government in, in at the time? It was the Congress government. Uh, I believe the Prime Minister was Mr. P. V. Narasimha Rao, uh, and uh, so India had no option but to go and beg, whether it was the World Bank or the IMF. I don't remember. You can look it up. It doesn't matter who it was, and they were they agreed to bail India out with strings attached, with conditions attached. So they decided they agreed to give India the money to bail India out, but then they would tell India how to use the money. So there were all kinds of conditions attached. They would India would have to open up the economy, open up the economy to foreign investment, and all kinds of things. So that's how the uh, so-called liberalization of the Indian economy happened in 1992. I think, if if I'm not mistaken, somewhere there, 91, 92, 93, most likely 92. Look it up, and um, and that is where you have this slow, gradual, and pervasive Western in, in infiltration into all into all levels, well, into various parts of the Indian system. That's where it begins. So because India was forced to, to borrow money from the West, from the IMF, the World Bank, they imposed all kinds of conditions on India, which made India open up itself, not just the economy to foreign investment, but other things also go into all this all of these ngos that exist today which are which have foreign funding and all that the roots of that problem lie in that economic crisis that india went through so the same thing is what's happening to sri lanka right now sri lanka already is deeply infiltrated by the west uh, let's not go into the details of that but uh, if sri lanka were to go to the world bank or the imf for more money then they would have all kinds of conditions on sri lanka and sri lanka essentially would become a western vassal state more than what it is already more than what it already is today so that's why sri lanka would rather prefer to borrow money from a country like india maybe they would if they're desperate enough they may even go to china again or maybe somewhere else everywhere there are strings attached i believe the indian government also for the sake of india's national interest would impose certain conditions on which would perhaps not be publicized but there would obviously be certain strings attached when it comes to bailing out the Sri Lankan economy. I believe it is in Sri Lanka's best interest to stick to India. I am sure India can completely bail out the country if the Indian government 
wishes to do that. But obviously, there, there, there is a quid pro, pro quo. That's how it works in international affairs. Sri Lanka, the people of Sri Lanka are our own people. There is no difference culturally, religiously, ethnically or anything between us and them. But today, they are a separate nation state. And therefore, the rules of geopolitics apply. So it is in India's interest, long-term interest, to bail out Sri Lanka, to stabilize the country. We don't want another disaster there. We are already seeing a small gradual trickle of refugees from Sri Lanka to, into India right now because they want to escape the disaster that's unfolding there. It's mainly, I believe, Tamil refugees coming into Rameshwaram and southern parts of India, Tamil Nadu, because that's where that's the geographical region that abuts Sri Lanka. So we don't want a new crisis there. It is in our interest to stabilize the country, to bail them out as far as we can. It is in Sri Lanka's interest not to approach the World Bank or the IMF or the Chinese because they're gonna they're gonna essentially buy out the whole country. They're gonna infiltrate the country, infiltrate the country, and turn Sri Lanka into a Western colony or a Chinese colony. So the Sri Lankans need to ask themselves, the government, not the people. The people have no power. The people, what can the people do? It's the People in power, the government, the politicians, the army, they have to decide what is in their long-term best interest. Now, I'm sure that there will be some checkbook diplomacy going on even now. There will be offers from the Chinese to the Rajapaksas of certain bribes. There may even be such similar offers from the West. But in the long-term best national interest of the Sri Lankan people and the Sri Lankan nation, it is best that they deal with India, which is nothing but well, the same, the same civilization, the same people. So they will get the best deal from India and not from anybody else. So I believe it is incumbent upon the Indian government, the Indian Foreign Service, the Indian Foreign Minister, Prime Minister, etc. to make it abundantly clear to the Sri Lankan government that their best interest lies with India. India will give them the best possible deal, which will not be a deal that will cost them an arm and a leg and a pound of flesh. India will not make the Sri Lankans do that or pay that sort of a price for, for any help. The Chinese certainly will. The West, of course, will. So let's see how this goes. But that is what the Sri Lankan crisis, the current economic crisis is all about. Their corrupt politicians, their corrupt government has brought this upon the nation and the people. And if things go bad, the Rajapaksas will fly out somewhere. If they feel that there is no, nothing more left to extract from the country. But maybe the Indian government can work with the Rajapaksas and uh, turn the fortunes of the, current, uh, of the country around. Let's see how that goes. So that is what lies, what is the root cause of the problem. That is where the situation currently is. And these are the possibilities that may come about. They may go to the Chinese, they may go to the West, IMF, World, World Bank, whatever. Or they could stick with India and uh, hopefully turn things around. So that is all about Sri Lanka and what's going on there. Now let's go towards Russia and Ukraine because... Obviously, we have to talk about it. That's the major burning issue right now. So let's not go into what is the situation on the ground in Ukraine. No, it's, it's been dissected threadbare. It's, it's happening everywhere. Let's talk about something else. Uh, another aspect of this conflict, of this crisis, of the bigger picture of what's happening. So as we know, as we all know, as you all know, the Americans, the West, the, when we say the West, it means the Americans by proxy. So the West has imposed these sanctions 
economic sanctions on Russia. Everything that they could do, they've done on Russia. So that has caused an economic crisis for the Russians. The Russians, uh, so what happened is that the Russian ruble, its, its value fell very rapidly when this entire crisis began. As soon as Mr. Putin ordered the Russian intervention, let's call it, in Ukraine, uh, the sanctions were imposed on Russia. And uh, because of the sanctions, the value of the Russian currency, the ruble, dropped dramatically. It became like worthless almost, right? Because there was no more demand. See, when, when something is in demand, its price rises. When there is something that is in short supply, its price rises. But when it becomes abundantly available everywhere, its price goes to zero. So if something is in demand, it's not enough to be abundantly available everywhere. It has to be in demand. So if something is in demand, but it's abundantly available, its price is low. But if something is in demand, but it's very rare to find, its price will be very high. So when a currency is no longer in demand, when it is sanctioned, then its price drops. And when your when your currency's price drops, you go to you have to buy anything. You have to pay much more of your currency to acquire that. So that is a huge problem, right? It means that you have to pay much more in value of your currency to acquire something compared to what it was yesterday. That sort of thing. So that is what the Russian ruble has been facing. And that's what the Russian economy has been facing. Now let's talk about the US currency. The US currency is the world's reserve currency. It's been that way since 1945 or 1944. Look it up, the Bretton Woods Agreement, which is when the victorious Americans, along with their vassal state, the their so-called allies, they decided to make the US dollar the global reserve currency. At the time, the US dollar was pegged to the price of gold, which means that the US dollar was a proxy for gold. You buy, you acquire a dollar, it means you are acquiring a certain value of gold. And the US government promised to redeem dollars for gold on demand. All right. So that's, that's what the dollar situation was. It was on the gold standard. So dollars represented gold. Then you had in the 1970s, I believe, was it? Uh, during the reign of Mr. Nixon, you had this, uh, you had a crisis in the Middle East. Uh, and all the oil exporting nations, the OPEC nations, Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, they kind of decided to boycott the US. And they decided to no longer supply the US in the West with oil or something like that. Look it up, that crisis. And because of that, the price, the value of the dollar dropped dramatically. And that's when Richard Nixon... And, and, and when the value of the dollar started dropping, people started dumping the dollar and asking for gold in return. And that became a crisis for the US because it would, it, it would have ended up eating up all of America's gold reserves. And the Americans did not want to want to let that happen. They wanted to hold on to their gold reserves, right? But they had made the promise that in exchange for dollars on demand, we will give you gold. So then what could they do? So what was done by President Richard Nixon is that he delinked the dollar from the gold standard. So then the gold dollar, dollar became free floating. It is no longer linked to the price of gold, to the to to gold, and it essentially what happened is that they turned it into a petrodollar. So do, the dollar came to represent petrol, petroleum, barrels of oil. 
so that's uh, that is the kind of uh, transition that happened the petrol the petro dollar system originates much before that the it is all linked with uh, saudi arabia the americans had this understanding with the saudis that uh, they would purchase oil from them in dollars and uh, and oil can only be uh, any transaction with uh, vis-a-vis oil can only be done in dollars so that is after that the uh, petrodollar system so today if you want to buy oil if a country wants to buy oil let's see a million barrels or of oil or whatever from anywhere the transactions are are only done in us dollars any petrochemical uh, product is transacted in us dollars and that is what makes the american economy so powerful it, that's what makes the dollar so powerful and that's why the americans are able to impose sanctions on anyone they want because their currency underpins all petroleum uh, transactions and the entire global economy so i am just giving you a very brief uh, superficial explanation of what the system is like you can look it up in detail you can read about it there's a lot written about that so that is why the americans are able to impose sanctions on anybody because everybody is compelled because of the global system to us use us dollars for all transactions including especially uh, oil transactions so now now what's happened is that because they imposed sanctions on the russians the value of the russian ruble plummeted precipitously so what have the russians done to combat that is the question so what the russians have done about today is what what is the date today 9th of april 2022 about a week or two ago look up the date the russians announced that This, the the russians are a major exporter of oil and and petroleum products uh, of of especially natural gas i mean uh, the russian natural gas gas exports are what power europe if they if the exports stop then the europeans will be forced to buy much more expensive gas oil etc from the us so the entirety of western europe depends on russian petroleum exports right and the russians have now demanded that anybody who purchases oil or gas or whatever from the russians must pay in russian rubles not in us dollars it will no longer be accepted the payments must be done in russian rubles so suddenly there is a demand for the ruble which means the ruble has acquired a new value the ruble is again valuable because if you want to purchase russian oil or gas you have to pay in rubles so it is no longer toilet paper it's suddenly again valuable so that has stabilized the price of the ruble but there is more to it the russians have now uh, announced that they are linking the ruble to the gold standard which means the ruble is now a proxy for gold and they have announced that 1 gram of gold is equivalent to 5000 rubles so if if you go to the russians with 5000 rubles they are going to give you 1 gram of gold but what's interesting is that this undercuts the value of the us dollar by 30% because to buy 1 gram of gold you have to pay much more the the price that you have to pay in us dollars is about 30% more so let's say you want to buy a gram of gold you can pay 5000 rubles or you can pay the equivalent of about 
6500 rubles in in us dollars which means that it is now beneficial for you to purchase gold using rubles rather than dollars because you're going to make a significant profit 30% profit and that is has stabilized the ruble even more so let's let, take a look at what the situation has been like it's fascinating what's happened let's look here this is the the chart of the price of the us uh, of, of the ruble versus the dollar it is usd versus ruble so uh in early february uh, where are we early february this is the 1st of february on the 1st of february 2022 the price the the ruble was worth 77 rubles for 1 us dollar on the day of the invasion it was 81 rubles for 1 us dollar and then the economy crashed the value of the ruble plummeted because of the sanctions and it was 138 139 rubles for 1 us dollar and then it went down then it went up and then all of these measures were announced and see what happens the ruble is becoming more and more valuable again and as of today as we speak the price of the ruble is 79 rubles for 1 us dollar so the ruble has appreciated compared to the us dollar since february 24 when the invasion began can you imagine what happened so they have been able to counteract us sanctions and the ruble has actually increased in value since the day of the invasion as of today so that is how they were, they because of their ability because because of because of the stranglehold on the western european energy market and because they have been they have decided to peg the ruble to the gold standard because because of these two measures they have been able to stabilize the currency and the economy and they have been able to actually make the their currency appreciate a little bit as of today compared to when how it was on february 24 so that is the situation we are we are seeing right now and what is really important and what the media is not speaking about the media is very quiet about this is that if this continues the value of the us dollar is most likely going to crash by 30% because now it is it is beneficial for anyone to purchase gold using rubles rather than dollars because you paying 30% less per gram per kilo so it makes sense to acquire rubles and dump dollars that is terrible for the us dollar for the us economy so that is the financial there is the economic equivalent of a nuclear attack that is what we are seeing right now so this is a situation that is currently in progress it is it is a fluid situation so let's see what the us does so retaliate against this will they be able to salvage the value of the us dollar or is it going to plummet by 30% in the, in the coming days and weeks that's what we have to see and because india is uh, on the verge of uh, or maybe i'm not sure if it's already happened but we have this rupee ruble agreement with the russians to acquire uh, russian oil gas petrochemicals whatever so it will be beneficial for india as well if we have a rupee ruble uh, agreement because we will get more value for each rupee that we spend vis-a-vis the russians and they are already willing to give us very good prices that's good for india but as we know the amount of oil that we purchase from russia is very small compared to what we purchase from the middle east etc 
but if this situation continues maybe we should purchase more oil from the russians because it is good for us and our economy and also since we are talking about petrodollars and all that the saudis these days are not happy with the americans for the past god knows how many decades the saudis have been a us colony a us vassal state saudi arabia whether you know it or not is an artificially constructed country it is a country that was constructed by the western powers essentially by the british by the british empire if you look at the map in the, in the middle east it's all straight lines etc like we have in africa which means these are artificially constructed nations constructed nations like iraq like the uae like saudi arabia and so on and so forth oman and so on so the americans because their currency is linked to the to to oil that's why it is very it has been very important for the americans over the past few decades to control all sources all global sources of oil which is why they have a stranglehold and a vassal state relationship master servant relationship with all of the middle eastern countries especially the petroleum producing countries so um and uh, the saudis have been big clients of the us they they spend like tens of billions of dollars every year purchasing american military equipment which is interesting so they are serving the masters so now what's happened in recent times is that the relationship between the united states and saudi arabia has deteriorated the biden administration is not favorably inclined towards saudi arabia you have this uh, cultural interference in saudi arabia they used to be a devoutly a, a very rigidly orthodox country and now you see that the the country has been opened up and they they now allow women to drive cars and and wear regular clothes they are allowed to show their hair and so on which is a good thing i have nothing against that it is up to them how to run their country but there seems to be an element of interference in the us first of all uh secondly the americans have been very anti saudi arabia especially after the jamal khashoggi incident there was a saudi dissident who was a us resident who was obviously we know he was murdered by uh, saudi assassins was it where was it istanbul was it i think it was in istanbul or it was in a turkish embassy somewhere look it up i don't remember exactly what the details are but the americans have been very very uh hostile towards saudi arabia after that incident and so the relationship the relationship has deteriorated significantly in the last couple of years or so or so right so the saudis now have agreed to supply oil to the chinese in exchange for chinese yuans not us dollars so the saudis are are now trying to cut the chain the master servants uh, chain that they have with the us that would not be good for the us i don't know what the what the retaliation the response is going to be like but the americans are not going to like this so the saudis are selling oil to the chinese in exchange for the chinese yuan so and the russians want rubles for that and india and russia have a ru- rupee ruble relationship so it looks like right now that the stranglehold that the us dollar the petro dollar has on the global economy could in the coming years maybe in the coming de- decade evaporate it is possible of course the americans will do everything they are capable of to prevent this from happening so it's an interesting phase of human history that we are currently 
witnessing on a day to day basis so the ruble is now a golden ruble and the petrodollar is shaky and the yuan wants to be a petro yuan that's where we are today what about the, the indian rupee that's what the indian government must look into should in the past the rupee was pegged to silver during the british raj era they had pegged the indian rupee to silver a rupee used to be really really valuable in the old days it was like 1 dollar versus 1 rupee that's what that was the kind of relationship we had almost uh, in the 1940s but then what happened was that silver the price of silver crashed somewhat and then the rupees value also plummeted because of that and then then it's a long history as of today the rupee is about 76 rupees for 1 us dollar so which is okay which is fine we don't need to change it too much it should remain stable but the indian government needs to take means needs to hopefully analyze the current situation and take advantage of how things are going to strengthen the indian rupee and by by doing that we will end up strengthening the indian economy so things are changing and india must do everything it can to take the most amount of advantage of this changing situation so that's about the golden ruble the petrodollar and all that now i said that saudi arabia has been buying us weapons it imports almost all of its weaponry from the united states the saudis don't make anything they don't have any weapons industry defense manufacturing industry or any such thing they acquire everything from the us india acquires about 70% of its defense import defense equipment from russia it's a very old relationship we have been buying uh, weapons systems etc from russia for decades from from the uh, from the beginning of the cold war itself from the 1950s and 60s onwards right now the americans are telling us the americans are telling india that it is not in your best interests to buy to keep on to continue buying weapons from russia you must take steps to integrate your uh military with our military for the, with the us military you need to acquire you need, we will give you better substitutes for russian weapons but you need to buy our weapons so it's a, it's a kind of threat they are kind of implicitly threatening india stop buying military equipment from russia buy american equipment now as of today india does uh use american equipment to a certain extent we have those chinook helicopters heavy lift helicopters we have poseidon anti submarine aircraft long range patrol aircraft there is talk of india acquiring american drones there are certain uh, missiles javelin missiles what is i'm not sure what it is those are also being acquired from the us uh, we have those attack helicopters apache attack helicopters and various other things so india is buying a certain amount of defense equipment from the united states the americans want india to integrate all of its equipment with the americans with with their military that's what they want us to do india obviously will resist so the question is should india buy american weapons us weapons now let's take a big picture perspective of this to understand what india should do let me show you something what is this this is a cell phone right we all carry cell phones today we we go nowhere without a cell phone in our pocket or in a wherever right there's always a cell phone on us now this one this device here is an android device and the, the one that i have here is manufactured by who is it samsung most likely samsung 
So this is an Android mobile phone, which is man manufactured by Samsung, which is a South Korean manufacturer, most likely. And FYI, it is important that I say this, South Korea is a US colony. It's a US vassal state. Now, this mobile phone that I have, it operates on the Android, it, it uses the Android operating system. The Android operating system is, is developed by an American company. It is based on the open source Linux operating system. Now, the version of Android that I have on this phone will be proprietary to the manufacturer. Every manufacturer of cell phones will have their own proprietary flavor or version of the Android OS, right? Now, why, why are we discussing this? See, computers, whether it's computers, whether it is uh, cell phones or any device, any device that uses computing, it has as at its heart something called a chip, which is an integrated circuit, IC, right? So examples of ICs or chips are computer processors, CPUs, central processing units, microcontrollers that contain one or more CPUs and so on and so forth. These are all manufactured somewhere by somebody. Now, do you remember something called the Trojan War? The Trojan War between Greece and Troy, the Greeks had uh, imposed this years-long siege on the city of Troy, but they were not able to break down the defenses. So what did they do, the Greeks? They created this big wooden horse and they put it in front of the gate of the city, gates of the city of Troy and they left. The Greek army left. And the Trojans started celebrating, yay, the siege is over. They opened the doors of the city. They brought in the Trojan horse. They had a good party celebration. They went to sleep at night and then the Trojan horse did, did its trick. There were soldiers, Greek soldiers inside the Trojan horse who came out at night, opened the gates of the city and by the time the Greek fleet had come back. And that's how Troy was destroyed. So a Trojan horse is essentially, it, this term is still used today to talk about computer hacking, malware, etc. A Trojan horse is a hidden entrance, which allows somebody unauthorized access or undocumented access to your computer system. So if you are a chip manufacturer, you can place Trojan horses, back doors in the chip that only you know about. It's something that allows the manufacturer or somebody who owns the manufacturer unauthorized access into your computing system, undocumented access into your computer, whether it's your cell phone, whether it's your tablet, whether it's your laptop, whatever computing device you have. It may be, a, it may be something inside. A, even cars have chips these days. Fridges, ACs, everything has a, has a computer chip these days. So wherever you have a computer chip, there is the possibility of a backdoor. And backdoors are not hacked. They are designed into the system. They are built into the system. It's a feature, not a bug. So everybody who uses a cell phone is potentially being tracked. Their data is potentially be, being sent somewhere. Whether it is to this country, country X or country Y, or the country where this thing is manufactured or somewhere else, you don't quite know. But that's what's happened. So they have penetrated deep into every country. I guarantee that every single chip in these devices has a backdoor. And whether you allow location sharing or not, or whatever else, your data is being shared somewhere 
they don't know about so this is a feature not a bug so how do you prevent your data from being hacked and used like this your country must manufacture its own chips its own integrated circuits and microprocessors and microcomputers and all, controllers and all that india still isn't doing that but india is on the is planning is putting the thing pieces in place to create its own semiconductor ecosystem and industry india needs to become a semiconductor manufacturing superpower but i am talking about weapons not semiconductors so why am i talking about semiconductors and chips let me tell you a story there is a fighter plane called the fa18 hornet all right it's a fighter plane you can look it up on google or wherever you want so about 3 and a half 3 decades or so ago the americans sell, sold a bunch of these fa18 hornets to their ally australia so australia is one of the countries that belongs to the five eyes alliance which is the us and four of its very close vassal states the uk australia canada and new zealand so these are the five uh, uh, english speaking countries and they are all essentially owned by the us right so the americans sold a bunch of fa18 hornets to australia this is a complex strategic networked weapons system that's what the fa18 is what does it mean it means that the us has unified control and data centers that are robustly connected via networks and satellites to these fa18 hornets these aircraft so a complex strategic networked weapons system can be turned off or partially or completely disabled remotely on demand by the operator or the owner hmm? so what the australians found is that they purchased these very expensive fa18 hornets to, to defend their country and their and their region of interest this aircraft has something called a target acquisition acquisition system and to acquire targets you know that you want to destroy there are certain system codes that are necessary to acquire enemy targets to lock on to targets and then to issue the command to destroy the target via missiles or whatever so what happened is that the australians found that when they were doing this practice runs and all that that the targets they wanted to acquire and destroy the plane would not lock on to those targets the aircraft would not allow the pilots to acquire and lock on to those targets and then there was no question of destroying them so only the targets that the americans allowed the planes to acquire were acquired but any target that the pilot would randomly choose let me destroy this thing the plane would not choose the target it would not lock on to the target so essentially the americans arbitrarily de- denied their ally australia access to the full system capabilities of the aircraft they had purchased for their own use isn't that interesting they did this to their own ally to their official de- official ally australia is essentially a us owned corporation that's what it is and still <laughs> the americans did not allow them to the full use of the systems they had bought they had purchased eventually i believe the australian programmers were able to create a, an uh, an alternative system and and um, install that in the aircraft and maybe after 15 or so years or maybe two decades later they were able to acquire full use of the aircraft they had purchased right so isn't that interesting this is what the us did to their one of their closest allies and it's not just about the the 
target acquisition systems and full control. It's also about spares. One of the reasons why Boeing, the Boeing aircraft company makes so much money is not because it sells big aircraft to all the countries in the world. It's because there is a continuous ongoing demand for spare parts. You can't, I mean, a, a plane, a Boeing plane or an Airbus plane, let's say, it needs to replace spare parts on a continuous ongoing basis. Every week, every month, you will need something that has to be replaced. There is this maintenance that is scheduled all the time and you need to replace spare parts because there is wear and tear and so on and so forth. So one of the major ways in, these, in which these uh, companies make money is by selling spares and only they know how to manufacture the spares. So let's say you acquire a US aircraft, you will need to continuously uh, by purchase spares from the company, from the American company. We have Indi the Indian Air Force has the Chinook helicopters. We need spares to uh, keep the, uh, the the aircraft, the helicopters flying. We have the Poseidon uh, aircraft, which are anti-submarine aircraft and long distance uh, patrol and reconnaissance aircraft. They also need spares. We need to keep purchasing spares from the Americans. The Pakistanis, in the 1980s, they bought F-16s from the Americans, right? And the Americans gave this to the, to the Pakistanis when they were financing Pakistani terrorism in India. So the, uh, the Pakistanis acquired F-16s. Clearly, the Americans, so this entire system of remote control, it goes back decades. It's not something that has uh, emerged in the 21st century. It's been always there since the 1960s onwards. So the Americans have hundreds, maybe thousands of military satellites, remote sensing satellites, which control all of these weapon systems that, that they have sold to various customers and countries across the world. So the Pakistanis have these F-16s. Now, uh, in 2019, there was this incident between India and Pakistan. One F-16 was shot down, one MiG was shot down, our pilot was captured briefly by the Pakistanis, and we forced them to give our pilot back unharmed, right? That's what happened. Now, they sent a bunch of F-16s, the Pakistanis, into Indian airspace. It's clear that the Americans could have prevented this from happening. They could have disabled the F-16s from launching, or when they re realized the F-16s are going into Indian airspace, they could have turned some systems, weapon systems off or something like that. The Americans did not do that. They wanted to enjoy the spectacle with popcorn and coke. So again, it tells you how reliable the US is as an, as an ally. And this applies, this sort of remote control, target acquisition, and so on, the ability to turn off or partially disable these complex strategic networked weapon systems. This applies not only to aircraft, it applies to FA-18 Hornets, to F-16s, to helicopters, to anti-submarine aircraft, to anti-tank weapons, to shoulder-launched surface-to-air missiles like the Stinger missiles, to strategic drones, to ballistic missiles, and anything that uses GPS navigation. Uh, during the Kargil War, they, the Americans denied the Indian Army the use of GPS. So that is the problem. So if India were to acquire US weapons, it would be totally dependent on the US to the whims and fancies of the US government as to what use it can make of these weapon systems and whether it can use them or not at all. That is the major problem India will face if it acquires U.S. weapon systems. And you know what? It doesn't apply only, the, only to the U.S. You acquire French Rafales, even the French will have this, the ability to remotely control certain, parts, certain aspects of the Rafale aircraft. You acquire Russian weapons, even the Russians may have similar remote control, let's say over the S-400 or, or whatever else. But we know 
that the Russians have never prevented India from using weapons in the past. They have never ever disabled any feature of whatever they've sold to India. India has used Russian weapon systems multiple times on an ongoing basis in various wars and conflicts. So the Russians have never done that to India, backstabbing. The Americans did that during the Kargil war. So if India were to ditch Russian weaponry and decide to purchase US weapons in as a replacement, it could make India totally vulnerable to the US. It means India becomes a com- completely, in all ways, a US colony. And then they can tell us whatever they want us to do and we will have to obey. That's why I would say it is imperative for India to stop purchasing weapons from other countries. India needs to develop its own weapons industry and we are taking robust measures to do that. But it's still something that's going to take at least 10 to 20 years. I would say two decades. In the meanwhile, we should make sparing use of weapon systems from other countries and certainly don't trust any nation. By that, I mean any nation at all. So that is the situation. So India should not purchase US weapons. India should not purchase weapons from any other country. That's what I would like to say. That is what would be the best for India's national interest, for the Indian interest. Right. So now I would like to address one more thing. Is the West evil? I mean, lots of people say that I am anti-West. I am pro-Russia. I am nowadays even pro-China, supposedly. So the major thing that is said is that I am anti-West. So is the West evil? Is Is that what I believe? No. The West is not... What do we mean by the West? Let's say that the West means Western Europe, the United States, the English-speaking countries, all of that. Is it evil? If you mean the people of the West, no. People are the same the world over. If you travel to other countries, you will realize that anywhere you go, whether it's in Africa, in Eastern Asia, in uh, Northern Eurasia, Western Europe, or in the Americas, or anywhere else, people are the same everywhere. People have the same needs, the same wants, the same hopes, the same aspirations, the same desires. Everybody wants to live a good life. Everybody wants to live a peaceful, stable, calm, productive life. Everybody wants to be prosperous. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to have a good family, a happy family. Everybody wants their children to do well and have good jobs and good lives and their descendants to do well. That's what every single human being wants anywhere in the world. So I have absolutely nothing against the people of the West or the East of, or anywhere else. I want everyone to be happy. So what, 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 is, what did they say? Sarva Sukhina Bhavantu, right? That's what we wish for the whole world. But that's not how it works. So what exactly is it that is the problem with the West? It is this attitude of colonization, neo-colonialism and so on. And imperialism. And that is something that the people are not guilty. It is not their fault that their governments do this. And when we talk about governments, there's only one real power in the West, which is the US. Now Now, the US is an empire. It's the American empire. You can call it a superpower. A super, the word superpower is a euphemism for the word, for the older word empire. So the Chinese are an aspiring empire and the US is the existing empire. The US empire spans the whole globe, like we spoke about. Their currency is the global reserve currency and so on. So the thing is that it's not just the US, but various other countries also that have these imperial tendencies. For instance, 
France controls a significant part of Africa by proxy even today, and uh, so on and so forth. So the West is not evil. I have absolutely nothing against the people of the West or against Western culture. I have lived in the West on multiple occasions. I like the people there. I many aspects of their of their culture and their way of life are great, very nice. So nothing against the people of the West, nothing against any individual, but the overall policies that they pursue, the interference that they do in other countries, that is a big problem. It doesn't allow the world to evolve and grow organically, naturally. There's always interference. For instance, they, they talk about democracy. Now, it, it's very nice to speak about democracy. Democracy is a very good concept. It's like when you say that I am a liberal person. I am liberal, you are something else. When you use the right words, whatever you do sounds good. So you have this this American organization called the National Endowment for Democracy. So it is an arm of the US government, or maybe not. Maybe it claims that it is not an arm of the US government, but it's a very big, powerful, and very well-funded organization in the US, the National Endowment for Democracy, that promotes, promotes democracy in other countries. What do you mean by promoting democracy? I mean, does every country have to follow the U.S. methods and the U.S. way of life and the U.S. way of governance? What if certain countries have a system of monarchy? In Africa, across the world, you always had monarchies. And in certain countries, you have a one-party rule. Maybe it's what the people want. I mean, the the principle of the global world order, the rules-based world order, is non-interference in the internal matters of other countries. But then you have these organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy. And I think there's another one called the European Endowment for Democracy that actively interfere in other countries' internal affairs. So that, and by by promoting democracy, they actually, what they're actually doing is they are promoting regime change. They accuse a certain government of being fascist, the leaders of being fascist, and they try to create new leaders fund new political parties. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a new political party emerges and a new person emerges. And within a decade or so, they become relevant to start winning elections here and there. Have you seen this somewhere? Have you? And new television stations emerge out of nowhere, the mushroom out of of non-existence and things like that. And various NGOs are funded with millions of dollars. Various scholars and journalists are promoted. This is all the process of regime change. They have done this again and again and again and again. The Arab Spring, the so-called color revolutions in former USSR republics, what they did in Ukraine in 2014, and in certain other places that may be closer to your home. So this is the kind of interference that is unacceptable, but they can do it because they have the power. That is what matters in geopolitics. Power is the only thing that matters. Beyond power, nothing else matters. And you can talk about nice things and concepts like inclusiveness and diversity and pluralism and democracy and all that. It is all just eyewash. They are just trying to... The only... uh, the only objective for them is to control the whole world. And it's not this... See, any any power will do that. That is just the nature of power. So I am not against country X or country Y or country Z. Any power, any country will try and look after its national interest. If it requires interference in other countries' internal affairs, they will do that. If it requires going to war with other countries, invading other countries, they will do that. That's just how it works. 
so all of this talk about the rules based international order and things like that you know it's it's just for show it's just for talk at the end of the day the rules of geopolitics have been the same since the days of vishnu gupta chanakya and even before that so i am not anti west i am not pro russia i am not pro china i am only pro india and what i whatever i'm saying is what in my opinion is the best course of action for india so i am certainly not anti west the west is not evil power is power power is not good or evil you can use it for any purpose you like but power is just the the principal and most important factor in geopolitics internal affairs internal regional politics and in human interactions personal interactions as well because even in interpersonal interactions when you interact with any human being in your society in the country in your city in your town in your village there is a subtle power interaction there is a subtle status interaction you may not realize it but you realize it subconsciously so there is the so so that is what it is power is is at the basis of everything these asymmetries are what drive geopolitics there is nothing such as evil or bad there is only your national interest and other countries national interests and depending on what you do with your country and your economy and your power you may rise or fall and that's how it goes now there's one more thing that people talk to me about the mitrokin archive so recently i made i spoke about maybe a week or so ago perhaps uh, about the fact that the ussr has done nothing to india compared to what the west has done compared to what the english speaking countries have done the russians the ussr did not enslave my country and my people for the best part of 500 years the ussr and the russians did not steal plunder loot 50 trillion dollars worth of treasure from my country and my people they did not conduct the genocide of 100 million of my people they did not partition my country and they they do not uh, issue sanctimonious warnings to my country today the russians have never done that so some people say abhijit you are wrong the russians infiltrated india with their kgb agents and and communists and look at what vasily mitrokin said look at what what uh, the mitrokin archives states look at what yuri bezmenov has said about what they were doing in india on the one hand you have these incredible atrocities and crimes against humanity on the other hand you have a little bit of infiltration from the ussr but people don't see this the balanced perspective so let me go deeper into this you speak about the mitrokin archive let's let's uh, let's go a little bit into that so let's understand who vasily mitrokhin was let's go to wikipedia statutory warning wikipedia is not a reliable source of information i'm just going here for the for making this thing go as quickly as possible and for convenience but please remember wikipedia is not necessarily a reliable source of information so what does this say this article say about vasily mitrokhin he was a major and senior archivist for the ussr's foreign Inter- intelligence service the first chief directorate of the kgb he defected to the united kingdom in 1992 and he gave the the west the uk a vast collection of his own handwritten notes purporting to be copies of original kgb files this became known as the mitrokin archive and it it, it exposed various uh, soviet agents and so on and so forth so he defected 
to the west he first went to the american embassy in latvia the americans did not consider him upon assessment to be a credible source of information they concluded that the co- the hand copied documents could have been faked so then this guy went to the british embassy and they, the british uh, decided to take him in and they ret- retrieved some 25000 pages of files uh, and so on and he and his family were exfiltrated to britain and uh, and so on and so forth so what are the mitrokin archives the mitrokin archives archive is a collection of hand written notes which this guy copied from apparently original kgb files and that's what it is and it talks about all kinds of things kgb operations blackmail operation operations accused but unconfirmed disinformation campaigns installation and, com- and, sub- and support of communist governments in various countries assassination attempts and plots penetration of churches support of militant organizations and terrorists and active measures in in india apparently hmm? so this is the mitrokin archive there is another gentleman called yuri bezmenov who is alleged to be uh, to have been somebody who loved india very much that's what it is alleged so he was a soviet journalist and a former kgb informant who defected to canada he was stationed in india he apparently grew to love the people of india and the culture of india and he defected to the west and he gave anti communist lectures in the 1960s 70s and 80s and published some books that's his story in very brief and he wrote a lot of pro american literature gave a lot of lectures and so on and so forth and he spoke about the soviet subversion model uh, which is about how the ussr infiltrated various countries and tried to subvert the population by controlling uh, the media the academia and so on and so forth so let me show one more reference which is this article by op india this is not what i am saying it is what op india is saying let me be very clear about this it's an article written on in op india and uh, which is a publication that i uh, to a large extent admire so the article is the kgb ties of indira gandhi how india became a puppet of the ussr during the cold war so it's based on the mitrokin archive mitrokin reveals that indira gandhi was given 20 million rupees in exchange for crucial information and did not even return the bag or whatever so it says that vasily mitrokin a kgb spy who defected to the uk revealed all kinds of things there are several chapters dedicated to india and the gandhi family uh joseph stalin had a poor opinion of jawaharlal nehru he regarded nehru and mr gandhi as imperialist puppets who bowed before the british and betrayed their people they helped the british tighten their hold over india now uh and so on and so forth uh after indira gandhi given the code name vano by mitrokin became prime minister the kgb managed to infiltrate deeper into the indian government mrs gandhi came to power after the mysterious death of prime minister lal bahadur shastri in the former ussr uh all of that and it says that seven cabinet ministers from the congress party were elected due to soviet funding the defense minister during mr nehru's tenure v krishna menon was also given soviet backing uh he purchased soviet equipment instead of uk equipment and so on and so forth uh the soviets had penetrated deep into indian embassies were extracting information via their agents 
uh, several Indian diplomats abroad were seduced and later blackmailed into giving classified information. Uh, 77 elections, the campaigns of 21 non-communist leaders were financed by the KGB. Espionage wasn't uncommon in India. India had become a playground for various foreign espionage agencies and so on. So these are the, the things that are claimed in this article. All right, so that, that's what the claim is. It is all based on the claims of Mr. Vasily Mitrokhin. Now, let's understand this. It may be true, there is a significant, significantly high probability that all of this is true. So let's say, let's assume hypothetically that all of the claims made in this article and made by Mr. Mitrokin are true. So the question is, how much money was stolen from India as a result of this espionage? They actually gave money to Indian politicians. They did not steal money from India. How many Indian people were killed? Was there a genocide? Was there a massacre of Indians? Nobody was killed. Nobody was genocided. Did India became, did India become the slave of the US, USSR? Not quite. It, it claims that uh, India became a puppet of the USSR. Okay, it's a claim. But the Soviets stole nothing from India, no money. They actually funneled money into India to control politicians. And there was no massacre of Indians. So these are the things that the Soviets did not do compared to what the British did. Now, can we trust all of this? It is quite likely that at least some of this, these claims will be true. So what was the intention of the Soviets? The Soviets were afraid. They considered Mr. Nehru and Mr. Gandhi to be uh, puppets. What, was, what is the word? What is the word they used? Uh, where is it? They, they considered imperialist puppets. The Soviets considered Mr. Nehru and Mr. Mohandas Gandhi to be, to be British imperialist puppets. And they were concerned that India would slide into the Western orbit and they wanted a big country like India to be on their side. So that's why they subverted Indian politicians, maybe Indian media, maybe Indian academia, to influence the minds of Indians, to, to elect politicians who were pro-USSR and so on. But what harm did it really do to India, even if this is true? Not much compared to what the British did to India. Absolutely nothing compared to what the British did to India. And every country, whether you like it or not, indulges in espionage and tries to buy out the politicians and the media of other countries. Every country does that. I promise you India does that too. Hopefully, I hope it does. So is that something bad? Why bring morality into geopolitics? That's what everybody does. That's what you expect every country to do. Let me tell you something that you most likely don't know. The Israelis have a standing rule for their military officers, whether it is, a, it, is the, it is the lowest rank soldier or the highest rank. If an Israeli military officer, whether in uniform or out of uniform, accepts a ride from a vehicle, from a car that bears foreign diplomatic plates, then that individual is immediately court-martialed. So, if you so various embassies across the world, they have special license plates on their cars that identifies the vehicle as belonging to a certain country's embassy. So, if 
an Israeli military officer, whether it is on duty or off duty, accepts a ride on any foreign diplomatic vehicle, that person is court-martialed. Why is that? Because the Israelis consider every single embassy from any other country on their soil to be indulging in espionage, which means they consider even the Indian embassy as something that indulges in espionage. And therefore, it is clear that we should also consider, the Indians should also consider all foreign embassies to be centers of espionage, including the Israeli embassy in India. Please understand that. That is simply how geopolitics works. It's not about friends or enemies, good or bad, evil or non-evil. It is how it works. So I don't see the USSR as if it is true what Mr. Mitrokin and other, other people claimed. If the USSR did that, they did it for the benefit of their country, their people, their national interest. Don't blame them. Blame the Indian government for allowing this to happen. Right? So, and the other thing I would like to say is that we cannot take all of these claims at face value. Mr. Mitrokin may have been from the USSR, but he became an American agent, a Western agent. Mr. Yuri Bejvinov, he may have been from the USSR, he became a US agent, a Western agent. This claim that he loved the people of India and the Indian culture, what actual hard evidence do you have of that? It's just words, it's just a claim. My point is very, very simple. Be skeptical. You want to trust? Sure, trust, but verify. Trust, but verify. Can you verify the authenticity of these claims? Mr. Bejvinov's uh, archive, the, the uh, sorry, the Mitrokin archive, is handwritten notes. He could have pulled it out of his, his imagination. There is no actual evidence that all of this is factual and genuine. And it is well known that he became a US agent. And so the same goes with Mr. Bejvinov. So you have to see things in that context and perspective as well. Maybe it is all American propaganda. There could be a significant amount of truth to the Mitrokin archives, maybe 60, 70, 80%, but maybe 20, 30% or maybe 10% would be strategically placed to further US national interest, West, Western interests, which is propaganda. So we have to be very clear about this. You cannot simply blindly trust something. You have to verify it at every step. You have to have an attitude of deep skepticism as, as to every new claim that you come across. Use your intelligence. Look it up. Do your due diligence to verify each claim that you come across. Don't just believe it blindly. Indians are so believing, so gullible. Oh, this person loved India. Therefore, I should trust everything he says. What's the evidence you have that they trusted that he loved India? Beyond a certain Wikipedia article or some article in a Western publication. Don't believe it. Don't trust it. So that is what I would like to conclude today's session with. Do not trust everything. Do not believe everything you hear. Be skeptical. You want to trust something, you verify it first. Verify at every stage. Keep verifying. Do your due diligence. Don't blindly trust anything, anybody, anywhere. That is what is in the national interest. All right, my friends, thank you very much for watching this. Thank you very much for your presence. And I will see you next week in the next episode of the Indian Interest. Tomorrow we have the latest, the newest episode of the Ask Abhijit show. So please uh, let me know what questions you have. 
and I will try and answer as many of them as I can. I will see you tomorrow. Until then, take care. Thank you very much. Bye.